This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Henry Diltz, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Pantheon Podcast presents From Hollywood, California Art of Rock with Caution Friends A Pantheon Podcast. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, let's rip off the shrink wrap and get to the show. Welcome to another episode of The Art of Rock with Cotton and Friends. I'm back on the couch in the studio in the heart of Hollywood, and this podcast is coming to you via the Pantheon Podcast Network. Go to pantheonpodcast.com to learn more. This is Kosh, and I'm with the legendary rock photographer, filmmaker, and great pal, Jim Shea. We have worked together for many decades. Jim has created stunning images for Linda Ronstadt, Eagles, Pointer Sisters, Jimmy Buffett, Rod Stewart, and so many great artists. In a few moments, we will hear the stories behind his iconic images of these and other illustrious clients and friends. Now based in Nashville, Jim flew into LA to join me on the couch with amazing tales and hilarious anecdotes about some of the greatest rock names in history. He will take us on the road, in the studios and backstage. You will not be disappointed, I can assure you. Jim crafted his award-winning photography and movies meticulously and with great humour, sometimes essential when dealing with the trickier clients. So, stay tuned, pull over and listen to a true master. I feel so bad, I got a worried mind I'm so lonesome all the time Since I left my baby behind on Blue Bayou Saving nickels, saving dimes Working till the sun don't shine Looking forward to happier times on Blue Bayou
Good evening. Well, it could be afternoon. I'm sitting here with the famous Jim Shea, the premier photographer, in my opinion, of rock and roll and country. And we're going to talk about his history and of all the great stories that he will bring to it. Jim, thank you for coming. That's really cool, man. I mean, we only see each other, what, every few years. Um, but we started off together working way, way back with Linda Ronstadt. And we got so many stories and then we sort of put our ways parted and you went back to Nashville and things started working down there. But what I really want to talk about is how you started. What, you know, who gave you your first camera, how you went into that, and now the, the evolution of you suddenly becoming a sort of, a, a, you know, a dedicated photographer. Because by the time you and I worked, you were just like uh, you, lighting and da, 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 da. you were so onto it and so involved in it. Um, that it was breathtaking, you know, because when we were doing with Linda uh, Ronstadt, you were skating lights and doing all these sort of things, and um, it was breathtaking. And I know you'd worked with Ethan Russell before, and then you moved on to your own sort of field and became preeminent in your in, in your world. Uh, anyway, that's enough of that ramble. Tell me how you started. Well, it was, and you were largely responsible for me getting started, and I... Thank you very much for inviting me to be uh, part of this pro process today. I didn't, I didn't arrange I, crafts. I'm very honored <laughs> and, uh, to be on the couch with you today. I, um, Interestingly enough, with your background being with Apple and with the Beatles and so on and so forth, my first inclinations to want to start taking pictures were at um, Shea Stadium in 65. Oh, with the pun. Beatles. There's a pun right there. Yes. So Show you, Chasey. I was in the stands with the 60,000 other screaming fans uh, behind third base dugout, right. you know, trying to get pictures of the Beatles, and the only thing I managed to get was the back of people's heads and arms flailing <laughs> in front of me. And I knew at that point that I really wanted to be closer to the flame and get get closer to the stage and get closer to the artists and I really wanted to be a part of taking pictures of musicians. And what, what camera were you using for that? That was just sort of a, a you know like a Kodak pony oh. camera. It, it was oh, like a, a, a camera that was you couldn't it was not a through the lens camera oh. it was almost like an instamatic camera oh. very primitive i was only 11 years old so oh okay that explains a lot it was okay. so i was interested in photography and music at the time but that sort of was the seed for me to get started and when i started getting more and more sophisticated cameras over the years and taking pictures of my friends who were musicians and going to shows and taking pictures of people performers like Bonnie Raitt and Maria Moldar and John Sebastian oh, right, and yeah. people like that who were playing around the New York, Connecticut area. I would go to shows and take pictures, live pictures. And that was, uh, that's really how I got started, taking pictures of my friends who were musicians. And then I went through high school and was a um, photographer for a local newspaper, a night photographer. And I did weddings on weekends and anything that I could do to take pictures, get my right. hands on a camera, take pictures and uh, just get, you know, get as much experience as I could, uh, that's what I did. And so it, when it came time to go to college, I was going to go to Rhode Island School of Design, mm. but um, I went up to Rhode Island School of Design and, and visited with a bunch of people there and thought, this is a great school, but I didn't want to wait five years 
to go to college for five years to get a master's of fine arts degree in photography. I was already doing photography and I was very impatient. And, uh, mm. So I decided to go into New York and uh, into the city and I was working as an assistant with a couple of advertising photographers. Uh, Frank Muscati was one of the photographers I worked for, George Hausman. Oh, wow. And these were big Madison Avenue mm-hmm. photographers. Yeah, you've, yeah, seen yeah. The, you've seen the show Mad Men. Yes, it was around that era yeah. where there were, you know, we would do four or five ads a day. We would go to uh, Kennedy Airport and we would shoot an airline ad and we would come back to the studio and shoot Colgate toothpaste. And then <laughs> later that day we would go and shoot a location shot for... Uh, you know, a, a rental car company. It was amazing. We just, you know, I worked six days a week. Uh, I lived in the city. It was, uh, you know, it was a experience that was just, I learned very quickly, very fast. How, old, how old were you? About? I was 18. Oh, my God. Yes, okay. So you're just, everything's so flooding in on you. Yeah, I was yeah. just, uh, and I was just uh, learning at a really rapid rate. And after doing that for a couple of years, I realized that Madison Avenue, um, was really not my cup of tea. I wanted to get back to the music uh, aspect of it. And Mm -hmm. a friend of my father's who was a director in Los Angeles um, called and said, would you like to come and work on a film that I'm shooting in Alaska? And I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity for me to come and go to California. And uh, so I went to LA and to work on this movie. And uh, when I got here, uh, the movie fell through as mm. movies will as, do, as you know. Do, yes, uh, yes. So I found myself out in Malibu, living in Malibu, not really knowing anybody. No, not too shy, and uh, <laughs> just sort of hanging out with the uh, rich and famous out in Malibu. And I realized, well, I got to get serious about something because I'm not rich and famous. I'm running out of money rapidly. And uh, so I moved in to Hollywood and slept on my friend's couch for six months with his three cats, and uh, tried to get s- established doing mm. doing my uh, doing my photography thing, which was not not easy at the time. So there was a gentleman by the name of Michael Jackson who had gone to a school that was in a town that I lived in, Milford, Connecticut. It was a Milford Academy, and he had gone to school there. And before I had left for California, a um, one of the teachers there had told me to stop by and get a list of. Um, people who had graduated from Milford Academy that lived in Los Angeles. And one of the people on the list was a fellow by the name of Michael Jackson, Michael James Jackson, who worked at A&M Records. And so one day I was just thinking, you know, I have this list and uh, I'm going to give Michael a call. So I called Michael and he said, uh, oh, come by. He was very nice. And uh, uh, so I went to A&M Studios, and he spent uh, a few hours with me. Actually, the first the first day, right off the bat, we started, uh, you know, uh, commiserating and telling stories and stuff. Come to find out, he knew my older sister. He used to come to my family's house, and he used to spend time with my family. And he he knew my family better than I, I had realized. He um, then said he was going into the studio, and he was going to shoot uh, he was going to record a um a first album for a band called pablo cruz and it was their first album so he said come in and if you want to see how uh, an album is recorded and oddly enough it was right across the street at sunset sound yeah that was where that happened and from this building where we're sitting so i went in and um i had uh 
with my camera and I took pictures while I was there and got to know the band and uh, learned the recording process and and, uh, and did mock-ups of album covers because I thought, okay, I had you know been in advertising and had done advertising photography, so I thought, okay, well, I'll give a shot at doing an album cover. And um, so I did some presentations to them and they liked them very much. And Ethan Russell shows up from England at yeah. that point okay. and comes into the studio with his portfolio. Mm. Uh, Which is filled full of Stones with, and Beatles, right? Filled point, with the yeah. Beatles, the yeah. Rolling Stones, and uh, the Who, and all the bands that he had been photographing, and blew the band away. And, mm. and the band said, we want him to do oh, the album cover. Christ. So after a couple of months of hanging out with the band and um, being in the studio with Pablo Cruz, I, um, I, I thought, you know, and I was completely deflated at that point and Michael Jackson realized that and he said well why don't you and Ethan work together and uh, I said uh, well that would be together. Okay. that would be great and yeah. Ethan said yeah let's uh, let's work together so we he said would you like to share a studio with me so we opened a studio on Sunset Boulevard in Silver Lake that was the tram station yeah uh, yeah and so um, that's where we basically started and then we started um shooting uh, different projects, and I would assist him, and we that's where I met you. Right, because I think I came in at this point with Prisoner in Disguise. That's that right. That was the first one we did, but it's also two stops underexposed. Exactly. Yes. I built the I built the wall that she's sitting on, the, yes, the right. cove, the gray right. wall that she's sitting uh, on. Yeah, that was and a little fraught with... Um, um, <clears throat> because, uh, yeah, it, that was a rescue job. Yeah, you know. and... Linda's legs didn't look great, and everything was, meh. but we got over it, and then we went on to do Hasten Down the Wind and whatever else. But before we get into our relationship, there's one thing you've just missed, which I really want to focus on for a little while. Dianarbus, how did you get into that? You her assistant, or you were working with her? Well, um, because that's really a sort of a big piece of history, isn't it? Well, it it I. I really, I, 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 I really didn't have that much. Who Dianarbus is, but she's a, yeah. a, a fantastic okay. photographer. Get, get, get on Google it, Google it. My, I didn't really have that much of an association with Dianarbus. Oh, I thought you did. You may have me confused with somebody else. Oh, I do. Okay, well, this, you this, might, this yeah. have to be scrubbed. And no, I yeah, we can cut this part out. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I love Dianarbus. She was one of the photographers who I loved, and uh, she was uh, somebody who, you know was an influence on my photography. Oh, and, that's what it was. And, uh, and as many photographers were, Richard Avedon, Edward Steichen, um, you know, Henry Cartier-Bresson. You know, I loved the, you know, a lot of the different photographers. Oh, the, the cheaper end of the photography. Yeah, the, and so, the in, you know, the influence. Carl Schiavotova. So. <laughs> but, um, but that was how we met. And you and I... Um, you were from England and I was from New York, and I think both of us loved California. And yes, that definitely. was the. It was the magnet. That it was, was a magnet we loved for the two p- things, apart from the music and my clients and whatever else were all moving here. It was the sunshine, it was the warmth, but it was also the art. The great artists were painting here and sculptors were here. Um, and the music that was coming out. I mean, ever since I was in art school, I was really wanted to get here. You know? And you had a 1950 Hudson. Yes, Hornet, I did. And it was a great car. And we used to uh, get in your car and drive around, uh, get tuned up, 
drive around and look at the we would look at the sights and laugh (laughs) and just cruise around i mean we drive to long beach and you know just yeah because we drive drive everywhere yeah yeah, in the smog uh with the shitty am radio you know but playing. just driving around Los Angeles laughing, yeah. that was one of my favorite th- times. Yeah, we did have a good you know, time with that machine, didn't we? And then I had uh, slideshows that I did, which were uh, a lot of my work was on slides at that point. And so we'd sit down, we'd be at your house and have set up the slide projector and just go through the carousel and just look at... Oh, the Kodak carousel. Yeah, one at a time, just project them and... Uh, just laugh and, and look at photographs. And, and then the next thing I know, you um, called and said, or asked me if I'd be interested in going into the studio with James Taylor and um, taking some pictures uh, of uh, James as he's making his album, which ended up becoming uh, JT album, JT. his first album for Columbia after he left Warner Brothers. Yeah. So fortunately, I had the experience of working with Pablo Cruz for all those months and being in the studio photographing them. So I kind of got the sense of what it was to be in the recording studio, thank goodness, and what the protocol was and what the, um, how an album was made. So I understood the process. And so having taken pictures of Pablo Cruz and um, having Michael Jackson give me that, that opportunity to go in the studio and watch Al Schmidt, the engineer, record Pablo Cruz and all the great musicians that played on it, um, really gave me uh, an opportunity to, and the experience to go into the studio with James Taylor and and, uh, not embarrass you, basically, and be, you know, come up with the goods. So I would go into the studio with James, take pictures. Was that in the sound factory? It was at the sound factory. Right, Val Gray was on the board, right? Val Gray was yeah. the recording engineer. Peter yeah. Asher was the producer. Right. And uh, the section was the was the band. Russell Kunkel, oh, Russ. Lee Sklar, uh, Dan Korsmar, um and um, the creme de la creme. Yeah, actually. they were just yeah. uh, and so, amazing. Such nice people too. Yes, amazing. And so I kind of gravitated towards those guys because they were, you know, they were more sidemen and not stars. So mm. I was, you know, they took me under their wing and kind of, you know, looked after me because I was so intimidated by even being in the same room with James Taylor. Mm. And so at that point in my life, you know, I was 21 years old, and to stick a camera in James <laughs> Taylor's face was <laughs> to me, just uh, not, you know, it was a thing that uh, I was, that's one of the things about my photography. I, I would always um, ask permission before I took pictures, and I wasn't like a paparazzi guy that right, would stick your, a camera in, face, in somebody's yeah. face. And that was, um, I just learned manners from my family mm. and not to do things like that and not to, which, you know, kind of limited my photography. There are other photographers that I admire be, who are able to do that, who are able to just jump in and stick a camera in somebody's face and say, let me get the shot, and, you know. Mm. And so I was a little more hesitant about that. And that um, leads me to another thing, which was a lot of what we did during that time period, um, everything was approved. Nothing went out that was not approved. Every photograph that I took would go to you, and we would sit down and we would edit the photos and do a short list if if we had several thousand photos. We'd edit it down to a short list and then we would show the artist, whether it was Linda Ronstadt or James Taylor, and they would 
select the ones that they wanted to use, mm. and then those were the shots. If there were seven shots out of 7,000, the other you know, 6,000 shots would get put in the vault. Yes. Never to be seen again. It's still there, so, too, because we are the keeper of those secrets. And yes. that, to me... Um, was the protocol, and that, and that was the, the way Though we did it. So, I must admit that we used to cheat a little because um, the, the, the beautiful picture of, of, of Linda, you know, with the hibiscus and whatever else, mm-hmm. um, that's not the one that she put the X on. I put the X on for her. Oh, did you really? <laughs> See, there you go, a little bit of history. Yeah, um, because it's so beautiful, it's so gorgeous, and she didn't like her eyebrows. Okay. Ah. So I fixed the eyebrows a little bit. It might be on here. Mm-hmm. You can't even see her eyebrows there. Your bangs uh, are covering her yes, eyebrows. Right. Um, and and yeah, and, you know, she gave me like five frames with X's on, and the most beautiful picture of all, in my opinion, didn't have an X on it. So a week or so later, I put a little X on it, <laughs> <laughs> and she looked at it and said, "Oh, it's fabulous." Oh, whatever. That's yeah, great. Yeah, I, I, I actually have told her this story. Kind of push it along. Yeah, because I bit. still speak to her a little bit. So I mean, it's, yeah. Now I tell her that story. It's funny, but it, it's but that but that album package that was um, in working with James Taylor in the studio and uh, Carly Simon was there mm-hmm. and um, a great you know list of people came by the studio uh, all the time. Just you know, there were people popping in and out and uh, Don Henley and and various people. Oh yeah, people. because yeah, and, I started working for the Eagles at that point, but. The one thing I think was the most impressive piece of work that you did that blew me away was Simple Dreams in the Pantages with all the mirrors. Well, right after, yeah, organized. right after the, right after the, um, w- when I was working on James, Linda came in to sing, sing background. Linda Ronsack came in to sing background. And I had been going back to the, st- to the studio every night, de- uh, uh, developing the pictures, making contact sheets. And making enlargements in our darkroom because I did all the, my own darkroom work, and I would go into the studio and show them the 11 by 14 enlargements that I was doing, and they were, oh, this is, you know, they liked the photographs, so it gave me, you know, license to continue. I wanted them to see what I was doing, right. so I wasn't just this creepy guy hanging around the studio with a camera. Creepy never. Come so, on. Um, <clears throat> so they saw the photographs, and Linda was there, and she saw the photographs, and um, so she. She liked the photos, and she asked me if I would like to go to Aspen with her and Carla Bonoff to be her vacation photographer. Oh my God, and I laughed because I thought that's hysterical. Yeah, Carla who Bonoff. has a vacation photographer? <laughs> yes, and right. um, I thought she was joking. And then the next day, you called me and said, mm. "Why didn't you go to Aspen with Linda and Carla?" And I said, "Well, I thought she was kidding." And she's, and that's when you said. She wants you to do her um, her album cover, right? And the album was Simple Dreams, and that's when we started out um, working on that project. And so, after hearing the music, um, the Roy Orbison song "Blue Bayou" oh, yes, and all the great yes. music that was, and yeah. being in the studio with Linda, and, and uh, you know, similar to what I was doing with James, doing some shots of them in the studio, and so on and so forth, we. Um, Came up with, uh, you had gone to the Pantages Theater, and for some reason you ended up in the ladies', in the ladies room. <laughs> in the ladies lounge, um, which was an Sounds amazing like room. Me, doesn't it? yeah. It's a it's a 360 degree circular 
um, mirrored room, room with crystal mirrors, beautiful, yes. beautiful. Triangular, no, actually diamond shape. Gorgeous yeah. mirrors. Yeah. And you said, well, this would be a great place to shoot. And I went in and looked at it and I thought, okay, well. This is a nightmare. <laughs> right. There's no way to keep yourself out of a picture. It's like being in a funhouse mirror uh, maze. And so we had to build a, we built a wall uh, that we brought into the Pantages Theater. And we photographed Linda uh at the Pantages Theater in the ladies' lounge, and she was wearing a teddy, which was a little revealing, but not terribly revealing. And um, we we were shooting to uh, create a sort of a French impressionistic. We were shooting on GAF 500. Yes, but it we didn't exist anymore. But yes. we were also shooting. I had said to, I had said that. Um, I was interested in photographic processes, uh, antique photographic processes, uh, and one of them was the gum printing process oh, that yeah. I had been experimenting with. So without thinking and biting off more than I could chew, I said, let's do this as a gum print, and we'll shoot it, and I'll print it as a gum print, as a, a four-color gum print. And I had only done one single color gum prints at that point. Mm -hmm. But I thought, well, what the hell? It's just three more colors. <laughs> and so <laughs> I can do this. And so we did the f session and I made the inner negatives and started to do the gum printing at the studio. And it was impossible. It was the hardest thing I ever did in my whole life. We spent two months working on that, trying to get a good print that uh, that worked. Nothing wouldn't stay in registration. I really had no idea what I was doing. And uh, I had bitten off more than I could chew. And we would just, uh, we had finally come up with one that was um, perfect. One print that goes. was perfect. And then you went to, um, you went to put the album package together and you put the album package together and um, we brought it up to Peter Asher's in house. Malibu, yes. Oh, he was leaving for England. He had yeah. the limousine waiting in the driveway. Yeah. We went up to his house in Beverly Hills, and we showed him the artwork for the cover, and he looked at it and said, okay, great, it's wonderful, and approved. And right at that moment, we heard a voice come from the other room. It was Peter Asher's wife, Betsy. Betsy, yes. And she said, is that Linda's new cover? And said, now and, you know you're in trouble. And we, yes, we right. had the envelopes under our arm, one step from a clean getaway. And <laughs> she brought us back and said, oh, let me see. Yeah. And so she looked at it, and she didn't like the fact that Linda was wearing a slip. Yes, because we had SBA at the time, side breast exposure. And so she said, well, this will never do. I'm going to call Linda right now. And uh, what had happened was... All the time that had been taken over the course of the summer to release the record, Asylum was frantically mm -hmm. trying to release the record. And the thing that was holding up the release of the record was the artwork for the album cover. I guess who was taking the brunt of that at the time. So <laughs> you were getting all the heat. You were getting all the heat. And I, meanwhile, I'm trying to get a print that works. And we're trying to put the package together. Was it together. called a gum bichromate or something? It was a gum bichromate. Except so, <laughs> so she... Uh, she calls, uh, Betsy calls Linda, Linda, and she said, we have to talk about this. You cannot release an album cover and sell your music with your sex. Right. 
Well, you realise there was a previous problem, and that was hazing down the wind, because she was wearing that um, diaphanous sort of right. nightgown. You could see her nipples. Exactly. We were um, out on the beach uh, right. shooting her. And I had I had a lot of trouble with that picture, not for that reason, but I had a trouble because her hand looked like a kind of claw. Mm. It was in a, you know. So I had to I had to. Did you shoot Marjorie's hand? But we shot another hand. And stripped it in, you know, Ted Stadel retouched it and did all this sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Uh, but uh, I got into a lot of trouble for selling sex, as opposed to music at the time from, from NOW. Um, it was like, oh, it came down on me. The, the, again, the art director who just said, that's a nice picture. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Didn't notice the nipples because I was looking at other things. And so th- th- that is probably one of the things that spurred Betsy on was the fact that we'd already yeah. got the National Organization of Women down on us like a ton of bricks. And so <laughs> here we are at the 11th hour and the label screaming and yelling oh, at Keith you. Keith Holton me crazy. He was the chairman at the time. Yeah, they were trying to release the, the record for the fourth quarter to make their fourth quarter well, They were hitting profits. Christmas, that's why. Yes. And, and Linda was at the height of her career oh, and yeah. selling millions of records. So the pressure was on you to release the artwork. And... So the fact that it, the artwork was not approved, uh, we even went to Governor Jerry Brown, who Linda was going oh, out with yes, at the time. We so went we and showed the artwork to him and got his vote on it and said, do you think this is okay? And he said, yeah, this this is fine. Mm. I, this looks okay. And Because um, Jerry Brown used to stop by the studio when we were doing yeah. photo sessions yeah. and stuff like that. And uh, Linda and the governor of California were going out at the time. And it was uh, it just seemed... Very and matter also of fact stalked and very by the LAPD at the time. Hmm. Yeah, there was, wherever you went to see Liz, Linda, there was always somebody in the bushes. It seemed, you know, because they waited to catch something going on. Yeah, you know, privatized. Awful. Yes, it was awful. So it ends up we have to reshoot yes. the photograph and put. We have to call the Pantages Theater again. Get book the room, book the ladies' lounge, which was not an easy task no, because the theater is la- it's a, ladies like to use it, it's, <laughs> and also it's a legitimate theater that's booked consistently. Yeah. So it was trying to get in there, and then we had to rebuild the set and bring her in, and then we uh, she wore a kimono right. to cover her up, and uh, that was so. At that point, we abandoned the gum bichromate concept, <laughs> which was your idea in the first place, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and we went into Agfa. 500 gaff film right. which was um but you were cooking it and doing sorts of strange things with it like processing it at 110 degrees or something and yeah we were pushing it you know four <laughs> or five stops and the uh the grain were, were like the golf size of golf balls and we um were able to create a um a, a, fake a reproduction a reproduction of what we had originally yeah. done and so that's what we but did. That grain was structure is actually pretty beautiful because it's yeah you say it's like golf balls but it's also very soft and sensuous mm. you know and it worked very well with the kimono worked with the lighting, and even with me standing in the background holding up the dupatine. <laughs> so, you, everybody was working that day. Everybody it was just trying to get it done as quickly as possible. But the other photo sessions that we did, and that's something that we don't do nowadays. There's and people don't do these days. The album cover process was such that. It was a, it was a real production. We 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 approached it like we were making a movie. Mm. But there was a the front cover, there was the inner sleeve. Oh yes. There was the inside the cover, fold. the gatefold, and so each one of those photographs and each one of those sessions had to be set up 
And for the inside of the Simple Dreams album cover, we went over to a producer studio in Melrose across from Paramount, and we recreated a backstage um, looking area that had a, a similar look to, I had uh, discovered this picture of Marlena Dietrich, oh. who um, was sitting on a, a barrels from the Blue Angel, right. and she was... Uh, oh, with the stockings. With the, the stockings yes, and, right. and the hat, and, and she, it was a fantastic picture mm. of Marlene Dietrich. Mm. So the, that was the inspiration for the, the inner, um, inner, work, the inner uh, cover of the uh, Simple Dreams. And then the, as, uh, the sleeve on Simple Dreams was the color. We had gone to Disneyland, and we were on the Blue Bayou ride. And oh. when you first take off in the Blue Bayou ride, you're in a boat, and uh, you're in the, the, the swamps of Louisiana, and there's a cove, there's a psych that has right. blue gel projected on it, which was this deep blue. It was indigo, yeah, right. I beautiful, remember, yeah. beautiful Indian. gel. It was a Disney, it was a real rich Disney color. And I was probably high at the time, uh, and I was <laughs> oh, just mesmerized. And, uh, and this color just, you know, uh, just impressed me so much. So the, the shot on the sleeve of Linda with her shoulder up was partially inspired by the Marlena Dietrich and by the Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm, yes, right. So that's the source of those two concepts. Yeah. But we were able to bring in influences and... Um, and our various and sundry art history background, and the the fact that we were able to apply the knowledge that we had of the photography and art world was a big part of creating album covers. At oh, that absolutely! Point. At the time, we were sort of, you know we were actually raiding uh, you know the masters and whatever else. I mean, from you know from uh, the Renaissance, you know, through uh, it was just everything was going through the jazz period and whatever else. We all yeah. all of us were looking. At influences, you know exactly. So, and now, these days, um, well, they they don't even really release uh, DVDs any or CDs anymore. But um, when they did, the yeah you know, the the packaging got reduced down to very small size, and everything is smaller, and nothing is really thought through as it used to be. And because there's no real area, there's not a 12 inch square. There's nowhere to put it. You know. To, we don't have the great. It's just these little screens yeah. that people are looking at. So consequently, you find your most people want a close-up of their face, right? And then Bang. some type is Large put on type face. You, you go into so the vinyl is coming back. I mean, it's it's. I mean, I'm actually working with um, you know a few artists now who are saying, no, we've got to have vinyl. Mm -hmm. You know, which is great. And that's threading, yeah, because now I've got space to play with things, and I can now make the type legible. Because I'm a typographer, you know, and you need sure. to read the lyrics. You've got to read them. You can't just sort of say, what's that? And you can go with a wide shot instead of a close-up. You yeah. can go with a shot that's the artist is small in the frame, and, you know, it's more of a photograph and uh, less yes. of a headshot. And so, you know, the fact that photography uh, or music photography went into the headshot with a little type on it, and now we're getting back into uh, the fact that there's some art direction being required to be um, applied to album packaging again, it's it's a great thing. Yeah, because it's it's it, it, it's apart from the, the the great photography and the great typography, but there has to be some sort of uh, house style to the package. So you know, you take the album out and it's got a label on it, 
your sleeve is there, your gatefold's there, but it all looks like it comes out of the same, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I don't think there there are very few art directors anymore. I don't think, you know, there are art directors that uh, had worked in the past, but the newer designers that are coming up are, they're, they're, they don't design the way that you guys design, especially the way you designed, because um, you were just so good at... Um, pulling together so many different influences and, and incorporating them into one package. And that's truly when the album uh, Simple Dreams was given a Grammy hmm. for album cover of the year. And the person who received the Grammy was you because you were the art director. Yes. It was important. You you were the one who pulled it together. Uh, you brought me into the fold. We collaborated on it, but you were the person of record and also the person who was uh, who put the packaging together. Mm-hmm. And so it was a packaging award um, that you know I felt I you know contributed largely to, which oh, I was tell very me about it. And, God, and it was very you and I was very on it. <laughs> I was very proud of. And uh, but without you putting it together the way you put it together, mm-hmm. it never would have. It never would have reached the um, the quality that. Well, yeah, because I was acting as a bridge between uh, management and artist and label and you know you guys and uh, relying very very heavily on your expertise um, because I, that package came together. I mean, despite all the problems that, that we had with it, which were you know fraught and, and the pressure that was coming from the the studio. I mean, from the label. Uh, to get it out in time for Christmas. Um, when you think, look back at it, Linda was so wonderful to work with, you know? The whole piece was actually kind of kind of a gas when you look back at it, isn't it? You know? Oh, it's <laughs> it so much fun. And she uh, never, you know, she would come to the studio and hang out at the studio, and, and we would do photo sessions. We would work for 10 or 12 hours. Yes. And she wouldn't bl- blink never an eye. Never and complained. And never really uh, pulled a star treatment. She enjoyed you know the process and we had fun doing it and it was it was we had a lot of a lot of laughs working on these projects and um it wasn't it wasn't very serious it was uh you know we had a we had a good time and that was the important thing and i think that that was uh one of the great things working with you as well is that it was always a, well, you a have joy to sort of, yeah well you have to sort of keep it up in the air and enjoy yourself. Otherwise, it becomes a drag, you know, because uh, like we've been we very s- lucky. Our clients haven't been too bad to work with. You know? oh. There have been a couple, of course. There always is. Well, fortunately, and that's, you know, I mean, you brought, you know, you brought uh, the clients and we supplied the uh, the cameras and uh, slapping oh, and the lighting s- and the <laughs> sla- slapping mud on Aerosmith, for example. That was that was a oh, fun time. Oh, we, night in the ruts. We, we went up yes, into uh, caves. Yes, uh, Griffith. Do you Park. know they just reissued that album? Oh, did they really? Yeah, I was out. I was out, I was up in Northern California somewhere, and I walked into a record store, uh, specialized in vinyl. Mm-hmm. There it was, brand new, on purple vinyl or something. You know. That's great. Uh, it, yeah, they did a good job. It was printed in Czechoslovakia or somewhere. They nice. did a really good job, though. <laughs> That's great. Yes. Well, that 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 night, you know, when that when Aerosmith pulled up to the Bronson Caves, mm. in five separate limousines, that they all great. got out with their groupies and uh, their high heels, and and you and we all proceeded to uh, mm. put them into miners' 
yeah. outfits and smear dirt all over their faces. <laughs> well, that's be- yeah. That, that was- is because Stephen decided that he did enough of glamour, mm-hmm. right? Which only lasted for a couple of weeks. But yeah. anyway, uh, so yeah, we had to sort of make them really hard and to go with the record. Had to be really hard, man. Night in the ruts. Yes, night. In right the in the nuts. Yes, yeah. Yes. So it was. Um, it was that was fun as well. Yeah. So you know, really, we were just playing. You know, everything yeah. we did was pretty much just playing and experimenting and not going in with a that's one of the things that I wanted to get away from from the Madison Avenue my New York days was we would go, we would shoot to lay out they would a uh, advertising agency would come in uh, an art director would come in with a layout and we would have to match that layout right. yeah. exactly we couldn't even do anything that was at least bit different because the client had approved it and it had to be exactly like that so that became, you know, I thought originally when I started photography, that's what I wanted to do. But then when I realized the restrictions that advertising photography has and the limitations that it had, um, I thought, well, maybe I should try something else and get out of this Madison Avenue thing. And that's why, you know, I kind of agreed to go to California and experiment with that. But uh, I, um, I really enjoyed the process of finding the image, like going into a situation not knowing what the image was and, and creating it actually. and just having the image I mean, appear in front of I mean, there were times when we would, uh, things would appear and we'd use them and there were other times when I remember sitting down with you drawing things out and you were saying, well, you can't put a light there because it's going to shine in there, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I mean, the Pantages particularly was fraught with problems. Which yes. Is, yeah, it was, because all of a sudden, oh, there's the photographer in the shop, you know, and Linda's looking perfect. So <laughs> Exactly. Well, we actually, we, uh, we had a sort of model stand-in, didn't we, at one point for Linda? Well, we, my we sister had, sat in. We oh, had several. Patty, um, Patty sat in, yes. Yeah, um, we had, um, yeah, we used to shoot test rolls since there was not digital. We used to be able to uh, or have to shoot test rolls to see what the... Um, the the image was going to look like after it was processed, hmm. and so that was uh, we we would go in t- into the location, take pictures with a stand-in. Uh, in that case, it was my sister. I would bring it to the lab, process it, look at it, and see what lighting adjustments had to be made. Well, yeah, I should. We didn't have the luxury of digital. No, I know, no, no, no. But I, you know, because now we're talking about you know sort of color corrections and whatever else in camera as opposed to. Sorry, you know, put it on the Mac. But I seem to remember sort of um, motorcyclists sort of zipping back and forth between A and I studios or places like that, mm-hmm. and doing tests like three frames or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they're called snip tests or yeah, clip tests, yeah. and we'd clip off a, the front few frames of the of the roll, and then uh, judge that, and then according to our judging, the exposure, we'd either push it a stop or pull it a stop, and mm which would change the exposure. So that that was really how we had to adjust. It took forever. Well, we also, and had, now we also had Polaroids. Do you and remember? Polaroids which were, I used to place under my arm to keep them warm, and then I'd burn a hole in my T-shirt. Exactly. <laughs> and Polaroids were good to a certain extent, but they didn't give a true reading no. of, because you couldn't tell what was happening in the shadow areas. If, and if you, uh, on film, the yeah. shadow areas no, the were a lot more, yeah. there's a lot more detail. And uh, so there was, it was a real balancing act. So, and with digital, the way digital is these days, you can just do that in camera mm. and 
you do it right on the spot. And so it's it's amazing how uh, how it's changed. But back then it was uh, it was a process. But do you ha- still have a drawer full of Polaroids? I bet you do. I have a collection of Polaroids, and I'm actually put it putting a, a cl- my collection together to do a book. And um, you notice how I s- yeah it's eased a, into that because I knew exactly. we were going to have to bring that up. That's <laughs> right. I've I've gone through all my job folders which you know are in um storage bins and i started emptying the job folders out and with the invoices and the receipts and you know everything that, oh, that uh, related oh my god yeah. and so the the job full and then polaroids would fall out of the envelope and i'd go oh I'd, and i started making a stack of polaroids and they had disintegrated over the years to a certain extent so the color polaroids had held their value and their color but a lot of the black and white Polaroids had gotten very um, solarized. Oh, yes, they're half they negative were, now, right? Yeah. And Probably because you didn't wipe that squeegee over them. Exactly. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't fix them properly. Yes, right. So they, they, uh, there are these amazing images that I started scanning. And yeah. so I started scanning these Polaroids, and, and uh, I thought, okay, well, here are the one-of-a-kind images that you – and usually the Polaroids were – exposure tests so the person who was sitting in front of the camera wasn't even aware a lot of the time that the picture the polaroid was being taken i would just flash off a shot to see if the light looked good and they were getting their hair done or drinking a cup of coffee or whatever they were doing in front of the camera and it was a very impromptu informal shot and uh it created this quality by the informal nature of it, that the pictures that we ended up taking didn't have. Mm -hmm. So there were these one-of-a-kind images that had this sort of deteriorating effect on them that were one-of-a-kind pictures. There was only one. There's not multiples. There's only Mm -hmm. one of them. And so I thought, okay, let me start scanning these. So I started scanning them, and they, they, you know... They they look great on uh, so when you blow a, them they up. They still have the patina to them, and you know, beautiful patina yeah. and a uh, really great look to them. So that's something that um, you know that I, I want to do, and you just tell a little story about you know how we used to use Polaroids and how important they were before digital and everything. And uh, and uh, so yeah, that's the essence of an instant is yeah. the name of the book. Oh, oh really? It's a very pretentious title. No, it's great. The uh, essence of an instant. Yeah, because it is. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you were always testing, sneaking around, taking pictures. Oh, I we mean, we burned polarized like crazy. Yeah, yeah. Because you were in, you know, in, in the changing room, you were taking pictures, and you were over there, and whatever else, and you'd be showing them to me, you know. And, and then you would fold them up. And oh, ruin I know. Them. Don't tell me. There's that. so many oh, I pulled out no. of the. You would fold them up into these well, little. I, I oh, let's see. Them. Them. Yeah, we, we, I would crop them to a twelve-inch square, you know, a square, <laughs> so we could see how it would look. And so all the all the a lot of the Polaroids have these folds oh, no. in them, which are add to the character and are, yeah, are interesting. No, but but now um, it's just horrifying. Now. And you so you were taking it? these, you know, these original pieces of art and crushing, crushing them into sort of a, uh, <laughs> what would represent an album cover three months away. <laughs> and because they were disposable, a lot of times photographers would just throw them in the garbage. Yes, and, I know. But I chose to keep them. I yes, thought it was a move. Yeah. yeah, and so it was. Uh, it was you great. Have, so. Tell me, I mean, because apart from the, the move to Hawaii, or in Maui, you were mm-hmm. in Maui for a while, and then back to Nashville. Yeah. And what are you doing now with in Nashville? Because you're like a famed <laughs> country photographer. Well, I um, still... Well, after 
after we did the uh, album cover, um, and I worked in the entertainment industry in Los Angeles, um, when M- MTV started, and I started being asked to direct music videos for the artists that I was working with, mm. with my photography. So I did music videos for um, Glenn Fry from the Eagles, oh, right, yeah. uh, James Taylor. Um, oh, Buffett? Uh, Jimmy Buffett, Aretha yeah. Franklin, Joni Mitchell. Oh, you did Aretha Franklin. Uh, and so there was a, um, there were many people that I had been working with and uh, had crossed paths with that I started doing their music videos. So the photography took a back seat for a while because I tried to do both at the time, and I started a production company out of my uh, photography studio. Oh, I know the name of that. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so we we started a production company, Planet Pictures, and that was a. Um, that was our start, and we started. Do, uh, I started doing directing music videos, and they took off in a very big way. And so, I put the photography on the back burner for a while because I couldn't do both. And so, for the next ten years or so, I pretty much concentrated on doing film work and directing and shooting, and uh, that was my um, directive. And so, that. Um, but then I started. With the um, with the crews I was working with, I was working with people, you know, crews of 20, 30 people. Oh and it became a real grind because um, I was losing the thing that I loved the most was my love of photography. And I always felt that, although I enjoyed directing, I really missed the idea of working in photography and the, 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 the almost like zen... Uh, aspects of photography where they're very quiet and you're not uh, being accosted by 20 or 30 people asking you questions every five minutes and um, you're not under the clock because you're going into overtime and you're over budget and you don't mm-hmm. have a it, it was a real um, it was a real challenge to direct music videos and get them in under budget and to to do them the way you wanted to do them, so it was it was a lot of pressure, and I miss the um, the quietness of photography. Mm. So after um, I uh, did music videos for about ten years, I um, started getting back into doing more photography, and then I was doing both. So I started doing uh, photography and directing, which at that time the music industry had started to change, where the jobs. Uh, by definition, were not as uh, exclusive. There was not they they weren't as defined, and that's till this day has kept changing. So um, when when you do a project um, in those days, that you had a um, you know where you would have a crew of twenty or thirty people. Nowadays, you would have a crew of maybe two or three people. You know and uh, and now you can do so much more digitally than you could back then because we were shooting film back then. So yes, you needed right. assistant cameramen, loaders, gaffers, grips. And now with the speed lenses and the um, digital formats, you know, you can handheld and go out and shoot. You know, I can shoot videos by myself. I don't need a crew. So it's um, it's changed radically. And so as a part of that, I've gotten back into shooting stills as well. And oh, so okay. I, st- I still enjoy... The, the photographic process and working with an artist and the artists 
today are very similar to the artists that I encountered when I first started. They were uh, artists who were very much um, very individualistic and very uh, unique and artists that were really trying to... Um, to aspire to something great that that's uh, as an art form, and that's what I enjoy about working these days with new artists. It's great to work with established artists, but their image and their their um, their whole brand has been established. So you have to stay within the confines of that brand yes, and that I, image. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And with a new artist, you can help them develop and create a new image, a new brand, a new, uh, find their visual, uh, motif as it were. So, and that's something that I really enjoy is working with new artists that are, that are really talented. Well, they also have this fire in the belly, you know, yeah. you know they've got a, you know. They also like to have fun. And yes, they also, they also you know, want, yeah, I mean, they like to have fun, but they are dedicated to what is their art and it's changing as it goes along as music changes. But yeah, I just found the dedication to the, the uh, their music. Uh, very, very refreshing. Yeah, compared to the old farts that I work with, who are good friends of mine, mm -hmm. but they, as you say, they, they, they've established their look and their, you know, their sound and the, sure. the way they go, and their audience. But the new kids are looking for a new audience, right? You know, and I come coming across it all the time. It's like I'm hearing artists and thinking, who is that? You know, and my son will say. Well, actually, my grandson would say, you don't know. <laughs> so, exactly. Yes. And I said, wow, that's interesting, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's very, very, you know, very important, the fact that the music has to progress and it has to speak to people and it has to sort of do what it did for us when we were working in rock and roll, whether it was, you know, it was the California sound or whether it was whatever hard stuff we were doing. Um, there was this sort of uplifting sort of feel to the fact that we are communicating and we're communicating with the greatest medium ever, which is music. You know, and it goes back to Mozart. Exactly. You know, comes through Brahms, comes through Mendelssohn, comes through, you know, the great jazz artists, the big band swings, and da -da -da -da, and comes into rock and roll. And it's all doing the same job. We're supposed to be doing the same job. Yeah, no, it's true. And yeah. I think that uh, that's the exciting thing about working with people, uh, new artists, is, is that we can, you know... Uh, lead them uh, with our experience and the, the uh, with the, the amount of um, work that we've done over the years and sort of help guide them into a place where that's new and fresh for them but uh, also has some is rooted in some classical traditions yes you know? so I think that well yeah I mean it's like you know listening to uh, when we were young listening to the stones and it goes all the way back to the blues you know and how it was taken and then turned round and brought back again, um, but now it's got a different beat. You know, it's got a different sound, um, and we've got. I mean, it's not only the artists, but the engineers and the producers. You know, they're out there doing stuff now, which um, is like um, shaking, shaking me in some respects because I'm thinking, oh, and I think it may be because of the digital digital age um, has made uh, made a huge difference. You know, mm -hmm. no longer are they cutting and splicing with razor plates and things like this on the yeah. big old Ampex machines. Because um, now they can um, do a four or five, six or seven 
versions takes, like we do in, in graphics and whatever now, in an, a tenth of the time that it used to take, mm -hmm. you know? Dubbing yeah. and overdubbing and dubbing and overdubbing. Which, you know... It frees, it frees you up, you know? Well, and also there's a there's a, a tremendous amount of noise out there these days and that's something that um is a challenge for the artists any artist at this point is the is the just the amount of the sheer quantity of noise that's out there and how um how um secular it has become where, where everything is being compartmentalized into different categories so that oh, yeah. like when um when we were younger a jukebox would have Aretha Franklin, the the Doobie Brothers, the Beatles, yes. James Brown, um, and you know some George Jones, all in the same jukebox. And nowadays, you don't find that it's compartmentalized unless you go into a 1950s diner like Mel's Diner or something, Which and is, it's an yeah. old jukebox. But just in general, the compartmentalization of music has um, really narrowed down the field and there are there are stations that you know listen you listen to and there's music that's similar to it that they suggest and turn you on to if you're listening to Bonnie Raitt you know mm. maybe they'll turn you on to a, a Linda Ronstadt track or a Emmylou Harris track but um, in terms of um, yeah uh, it's it's so hard to find these days so it's it's difficult for the artist mm. to penetrate and find their audience where as somebody like Linda Ronstadt had radio stations that record you know yeah. promoters were promoting her records and they were you know it was a singular thing they were pro and she was on all over the United States everybody could hear her whether you're living in Maine or Florida yeah. and, and she was a, voice. a oh and nowadays it's it's very hard to penetrate that unless mm. you're on uh, you know dancing with the stars or something and yeah. uh so and that's showtime. That's a different thing altogether, isn't it? Because now it's you know it's showtime as opposed to you know. Well, and that's what's happened as well is that the the all the um, you know all the Im all the industries have kind of overlapped. TV, you know, you, you not only have to be a great recording artist and have a great voice, but you have to be TVQ. You have to be you know saleable to TV. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to act. You have to be able to. You have to have acrobats behind you exactly. flying around. Uh, and so. Um, <laughs> These are things that are the challenge for artists these days, too. Uh, and so, you know, you can't just walk in like Mom, Mama Cass did. No, Mama no. Cass, if Mama Cass showed up these days, people would look at her and go, oh, she, you know, she's not saleable, you know. No. You know, um, so great voice, but you couldn't sell her, you know. So no, no. it's really... Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's this whole, this honing of, and toning. Uh, it's a it's a, it's 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 a big business actually because you know when you look at the Grammys and you think of all the production you know stuff that was going into this you know mm -hmm. uh, I remember when you and I went to the Grammys it was kind of like kind of cozy we'd um, we'd huddle in the in the telephone booth right to do a little toot uh huh you know and then we go in there and it's just all our friends will be there sure you know? Roger McGuinn was at the Grammys yeah. when we were when when uh, the Simple Dreams yeah. Cover and one, the curtains Grammy. would part, and it'd be Fats Domino on the piano, you know. <laughs> and it was just stuff like that, and it it turned into this massive production thing because it's competing with the Oscars, I guess. I don't know, you know. Um, but it's not the sort of you know, it's not. It doesn't seem to me like the the the, the family's there anymore. It's now, it's now corporate, very very corporate. 
Yeah, well, that that happened. You know, when I mean that started, you know, years back when they, when uh, when they re- started realizing that you know th- these hippies that were making this music could uh, could sell records, and people <laughs> like Janis Joplin were, you know, oh. signed to label deals, and you know. Back then, they you know, and they realized, okay, this is a this could be a big business. Bill Graham came in and said, okay, oh, we're right, gonna, right. we're going to be the film all going. And yeah, we're going to yeah. we're going to make this a big business, mm-hmm. and that's you know, it changed, started changing back then, and then. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. I actually didn't think about that. It was just uh, I just was kind of shocked, just turning around and thinking, oh wait a minute, you know, because yeah, I was just talk- I was doing the the Let It Be um, anniversary thing mm-hmm. yesterday at Capitol. Um, and it suddenly occurred to me that um, things have changed so much in music and in the, the relationship between the public and um, the, the stars, if you like. And I just said casually something like, oh, yeah, I remember George Harrison, you know, he'd turn up in his roles and he'd throw the keys to the groupies outside Apple Scruff and they'd go and park his car. I can't imagine that happening today, you know. But that's how things have got sort of, you know, turned into sort of hyper, super uh, sort of enclaves mm-hmm. of showmanship, I think, you know. Yeah. Whereas well, before it was just the fucking music. And we could sure. Get out, you know? I think that, and also with the advent of the iPhone and the sophistication of how the quality of the iPhone, when you go to a concert now, there's 14,000 people sitting in the audience and there are 14,000 iPhones being right. held up in front of them with them videotaping the band as they are performing mm. and in real time that mm. are getting that are getting um, you know forwarded to their friends and neighbors and relatives and whoever they're sending these uh, images to but it's interesting you know I was on tour with the Eagles and they you know they try to control the cell phone thing, but it's difficult. And, uh, you know, uh, unless you have the telephone police <laughs> walking up and down the aisles. Which they actually, the forum, they do, don't they? <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh, you know, unless you have those telephone police just kind of coming over and telling you to put your phone down, people will literally just stand there with their phones and film what's in front of them instead of just sitting back and enjoying the show they're they're right, right. they have to share it with it that's the priority you well, have to yeah, share it yeah. it's something like okay this is what i had for lunch yeah this is I'm the bathroom ta- i'm in yes <laughs> this is the concert i'm at look at look at mick jagger what you know wiggling around right, on stage it's right. fantastic it's like well why don't we just so what's happened is it's taken the the um the singularity, it's taken the uniqueness out of images that we once created. Yeah, yeah. And now it's watered it down. So if you go and see a big act now and people are videotaping and shoot, taking iPhone pictures with it and everything, there really isn't anything special about the packaging for this per- person because you've already seen on YouTube and everywhere else images of these people already. Right. So yes. yeah. um, we were swamped in this point. Yeah. You're you're it's oversaturated with with imaging. And so uh, fortunately we were there at a time when there weren't a million cameras where there where mm. there weren't um, a million people taking pictures, you know, and so the pictures that we have are an archive of what what it transpired so that's something that i'm very and glad that's why, that i was that's able why to... i want to see your polaroid draw 
and you know, so I think that that's it's a very important, uh, very important thing that uh, we were. I feel really grateful that I was able to be a part of that generation um, that enabled me to be around the people that I was around and had the ability to, you know, photograph people in a very casual way and a very informal way and got to work with artists who I admired and... Um, yeah, all right. I go go with you a certain way there, but uh, a very casual way, a very informal way. Some of the work that we put together was definitely very, very well planned, mm -hmm. treated, worked out. Sure. So when um, uh, the artist arrived, it was all ready to go. You know, the Polaroids had been back and forth and it was yeah. stuff. So yeah, I, I'm gonna. I believe you for that. But the point is that there was some. I mean, I'm just simple dreams again. You know, I mean, think about the work that went into that. We spent an entire summer. It was four <laughs> months of work. Precisely. Um, but it was like you know making it absolutely perfect. You know, so it wasn't just shooting. Mm -hmm. You, you know, I never considered you a shooter. I considered you a sort of craftsman, you know? Right. And a pain in the ass sometimes because you couldn't get it right, you know? But um, uh, we always had a sort of sense of humour about everything, sure. even, even in the worst disaster, you know? I mean... No, there were photographers that were shooters that were just, you know, more editorial style that would hmm. come in. There were some great photographers like Henry Diltz that would be... Um, yeah, he he he'd come in and he would just have a camera and he would snap away and and be he didn't really care what the lighting was like or what it was what the people looked like in the photo mm. uh, if they had two chins or you know uh, the he just come in and shoot yeah. and it was great because he was able to document and editorialize a um, an aspect of the well, that's a industry that yeah that's a different way of do, uh, of photography I mean that is reportage. That was reportage, and so you know, but what, I considered you as someone who's like not going to let it go unless it's absolutely perfect. And that was the Madison Avenue thing: is just getting the lighting uh, right, and you know, working on uh, making the artist look as great as they could look, and uh, you know, just pulling out as many tricks as possible. And you know, maybe other photographers wouldn't have those tricks in their bag mm. uh, to, to pull out. But, uh, you know, it's something I enjoyed doing, which is something that, you know, I think is, uh, it's just a, it's a craft, like you said. It's, it's yeah. just a craft like anything. It's like making a, a great pair of shoes or, um, you know, uh well, no, it's, you yeah, know, I mean, painting a car. Painting, well, actually, it was painting. Uh, I wasn't going to suggest a car. But, you know, it, it's a craft. It's, yeah, it's a yeah, real... It's and putting you know, a mural together, which is indicative of the period we're in. Mm -hmm. you know? We didn't realise... I mean, none of us realised at the time that we were building icons. We were just, you know, doing the best we can, make everyone happy, the artists particularly, mm -hmm. getting paid and paying the rent. Right. And enjoying ourselves as best we can, because we're sure. young. You know, we didn't have that many troubles. Um, well, actually, paying the rent always was a trouble. Um, but that's how we looked at it at that time. And now it's when you look back, you know, and they're honoring things that we did 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that I really uh, connected with you on was the fact that I think we were both blue-collar kind of people. I think oh, that yeah, you, totally. you came from yeah. a sort of blue-collar background. East End of London, yes. And yeah. so you I did, really speak like this, no, And so you were not, you know, on your high horse you know uh talking about the aesthetics of uh what you were doing you were doing it on a pr very practical basis where you were 
you know, it was a, a process that you needed to get done, and you got it done. And uh, that was what I was. My background was was a, it was a it was a craft that I um, I learned in New York, and uh, was able to hone when I came out here, and and then being given the opportunity to apply those um, those that craft to what you were doing, and uh, I think that really was you know. There was no high aspirations. No. It was more of a, it wasn't a lofty thing. We were doing it because it was our job. And well, we, and more than that, the, the, the artists we were working for, uh, most of whom we really loved working mm-hmm. for and with. And so we were sort of trying to get the most out of everything, every possible part of whatever media that we were culling from, uh, to present it to do what I call, uh, consider the way that art meets commerce. It should be done mm-hmm. because ultimately we're selling the records, right? You know, but what we're trying to do is tell people exactly what they're going to buy. Mm-hmm. You know, we could, there's impulse sales. You know, when people walk by and think, "Well, oh, that's a great picture," you know, they'll buy it. Maybe fifteen percent, I think, was the mm-hmm. was about the, uh, the someone sort of estimated that. Um, but that was the whole point of it. What we were doing is, you know, when you remember walking into Tower Records and seeing our records up, you know. All around the all around the gallery, as it were, twelve inch mm-hmm. squares. Sure. The great art gallery in the sky, you know, and it's just was wonderful. And people were actually flipping through the bins. Mm-hmm. Now there had to be rules, you know, because in those days you had to put the name of the artist at the top. So when they flip through the bins, you know, there's the Stones, there's the Beatles, da 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 da. And if you get cheeky, you don't put you don't put anything on the cover except their photograph. You can do that a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was the whole point was, in fact, that we were selling records, uh, but also at the same time we were trying to create a frame, an art, so yeah. a piece of art yeah. that people would actually enjoy to hold and to open, mm-hmm. you know, and read the lyrics and sure. clean the seeds out of the... <laughs> I remember a marketing guy from a label called me at one point and uh, I was doing a photo session with an artist and the marketing head of marketing called me and said, hey, listen, Shay, Give me some real, just clean shots of this person. I don't want any of that art shit. <laughs> and I said, art shit? And uh, he said, no, no art shit. I said, okay, good, no art shit. Okay, and, and that was that. So, But that was from a marketing perspective. Yes, right. Wanted, oh, yeah, that's a different world. Over and, there, uh, yeah. and so that was, that was interesting. But, uh, you know, going down during that time period, um, I remember getting in the car, lighting one up, and cruising down Sunset Boulevard. And at one point, uh, I think you and I had seven billboards. Yeah. Because at that time, if you didn't have a billboard on Sunset Strip, you you, you hadn't made it as a recording yes, artist. Or you're, yeah. So <laughs> we would drive down Sunset Boulevard, up and down, you know, I'd drive up and down with my friends and just point out the billboards to... Uh, be, it was so fascinating having a billboard of your work on Sunset Boulevard, yeah. it was exciting, and uh, it was a very exciting time. Yeah, I remember the, the one of the, my favourites was the, was Linda Ronstadt on the skates, and we put um, shimmering. Um, what do you call those things? The diamond? No, no, no. Um, she shimmered in the, as the right. sun went down. Exactly, she lit up, and it all sort of well, sparkled. That, and that, and that was, was another yeah. that was another Linda package right after Simple Dreams. Yes, that we worked on uh, living, living in, in the, the USA, USA. Yeah. which. Um, Skating, learning. To, I had to learn to skate. You had to learn to skate backwards. I seem to remember thousands and thousands <laughs> of photographs of Linda Ronstadt skating, and um, her 
She looked like she was six feet tall. Oh, yeah, his legs she had were fantastic. Long yeah, legs yeah. and just a satin jacket. Yeah. Actually, the uh, the guy who owns the satin jacket that she was wearing on the on the album cover that, contacted me last year and asked me. That to, was a Dodgers jacket, wasn't it? It was a it was a blue. I think it was a blue Dodgers jacket. It was a blue she, she... blue jacket that had her name written out on it, and ah. so that somehow or another, this guy got it from like you know. <laughs> You know, Arkansas or something bought this jacket, and he he wanted pictures of you know signed pictures of oh. mine for her, of the you know to, to oh. and that's another thing that people do is they I was just working with the Love and Spoonful, and the, there were lines of people with record albums um, going up to interrupting the Love and Spoonful, John Sebastian especially. And going up to, in mid conversation, and they'd stick an album in front of his face and say, "Would you sign this?" And not only would they have him sign it, but they'd have him sign 20 other things. Yeah, I've had that. And then, oh, after we do the signing of all the album covers, could I take a selfie with all these uh, album covers so that it, I can yeah. prove that it's your signature? Oh, and so they could put it on eBay. Yeah, so, so they can sell it. So it's it's really, you know, come full circle. I got a really good one the other day because um, I got a picture of the Beatles, but it was taken in 65, way before my time. Um, and they asked me to sign it. I said, well, why? I mm-hmm. mean, I wasn't there, you know. Why should I sign it, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, but it was then. And then can you can, can you give me the phone number of Beetle Paul? Oh, yeah. I can phone up Paul McCartney. Sure. Can I phone up Clapton? Can I phone up... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, what? Well, you know what I do when I go to, uh, like, secondhand stores, and they have they sell uh, LPs, and, right. the, and they have bins of LPs. I and, love them, yeah. Right. And uh, so I'll go in, and I'll go through the and I'll find some of the album covers that I've done and so I'll sign the album cover oh and put it back in the oh, bin oh nice I never thought of that what a good idea and so some person out there you know is going to spend a dollar and a quarter yeah, for right. an album you know uh, that has my signature on it oh that's and cool so that uh, you know so I do that whenever I go into a secondhand store which is uh, which I my love little... browsing through those things you I know because know. You I keep greatest... finding things I think did I do this I turn mm-hmm. it over, it's got my name in it. I did do that. Exactly. <laughs> well, the amount of, the sheer volume of work that you did was amazing. It's just like. Somebody said I'd done like 2,000 albums. Oh my God, it's just amazing. I, I didn't say that. It was just someone told me. You, know, so. you probably did. And the, you know, the iconic work that you have been involved with, you know, not only from uh, a photographic standpoint, but from an illustrative standpoint. And you know, the depth and breadth of your work uh, is 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 amazing, and you are a true art director. Oh, and no, seriously, no, okay. they don't make right. art directors no, like you anymore. No, it's f- really <laughs> thank God. they broke the mold with, with new hips and shit. Like yeah, <laughs> and so, but seriously, they there there's not a uh, there's no all right there's no job description uh, uh, for a for no, an art no, director anymore. No. They, but they anyway, don't exist. this whole point of this interview is about you. Okay? I know, not but still, me. all right, because people have heard a, my. Sh- Spiel for years now, but so you were anyway. such a, uh, a an important part of my evolution. And yes, you were. You yes, were there, thank and you you're the so one much. who got me started. And yeah, well, I, I oh. thank you for that. Well, really. no, no, no. Yeah, but God, your talent just came roaring out, didn't it? There was no way I could possibly. Put yeah, but down. if we, I mean, if we on. hadn't, you uh, rescued. I mean, you rescued some shows when you were assisting the things, you know, and it was obvious, just obvious from the start that this is the guy I'm going to work with, because I can, you know, I can. I can go and have a pee and come back, and it's like, oh, it's all set up, you know. 
No, 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 no. I'm not going to go with that thing. Anyway, <laughs> I've got to wrap this up now. Okay. So I wanted to thank you so much for coming all this way. Did you come from Nashville or were you here already? Well, I was here uh, working on a project with oh. the Love and Spoonful. Oh, which of course. Are, you know, they, Sebastian. Yeah. They, uh, re- they got together for the first time oh. since they oh, broke up great. in the like the 60s. So. Yes, of course. Yeah. And it was a charity fundraising thing oh. for um, Oh, I read about it. A really I guess good I cause. I didn't know you were there. Anyway, getting back. Thank you, man. It's uh, there's a gas. I mean, Susan sends her love, by the way. Well, thank she you. She would have been here. Love to could. Susan. Yeah, she's nice. And thank you for having me. No, well, no, it was just my honor, believe me, because I've been trying to get you for a long time. You didn't know that, but you know, where's, where's Shay now? He's in Afghanistan or somewhere. No, you know, I mean, wherever you were, yeah. you, know, you were never um, around. So as soon as we got you in town, we had to jump on you because you'll you'll be gone again. Yeah, I, I go back and forth to Nashville quite a bit and uh, travel around doing... I do a lot of tourism work now yeah. and uh, up in Oregon. And yeah. uh, so it's the the work is very diverse you're, you're, and you're, I, yeah. I'm enjoying it tremendously. You're elusive, so. that's the point. So. Well, anyway, I'm enjoying it still. We're on the so. couch, live in Hollywood. Actually, not live anymore, but still. We were live once. Hey, man, thank you. That was really cool. That's my... My parents always told me, stay off the couch, the casting couch. Oh, the casting couch. No, I'm, I'm too old for that shit. <laughs> Thank you, John. That's a wrap. Thanks. Okay, that was me, Kosh, coming to you from the couch in Hollywood. I was with my dear and really cool friend, a great guy to work with, the ever-energetic Jim Shea, photographer par excellence. You've heard his wonderful tales of shooting some of the greatest artists in rock and roll, but we're not finished. There were a few omissions as we ran out of time, so we are planning a part two. I'm online at koshdesign.blog.com and you can find me on Facebook at koshart and Twitter. You can find all the Pantheon products on spotify.com and Pandora. If you search, you can find us on about 50 platforms these days. We are growing and growing. Finally, this is the one that really matters mostly if you enjoy what we do here. Please tell a friend about Pantheon Podcasts. Summer in the city, back of my neck, getting dirt and gritty. Bend down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk harder than a match here. But at night, it's a different world. Go out and find a girl. Come on, come on, and dance all night. Despite the heat, it'll be alright. And babe, don't you know it's a pity? The days can't be like the nights in the summer, in the city, in the summer. In the city Cool town, meeting 
Living in the city, dressed so fine and looking so pretty. Cool cat, looking for a kitty. Gonna look in every corner of the city. Till I'm wheezing like a bus stop, running up the stairs, gonna meet you on the rooftop. Art of Rock is written by Kosh and produced by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.